we think about criminal justice, we think about prison, jail, arrests, bond, bail, trials, hearings, arraignments, prosecutors, defendants, and statutes. What we don't think about are PAH levels in the air, lead in the water and the walls, people going to bed hungry and impoverished for decades, people being denied access to high paying jobs, people being denied the right to a decent education through not being able to attend pre-K, kindergarten, or have any real hope of attending college. And so I wanted to talk to Brad Haywood about what justice looks like in Virginia. Because as Cornell West says, justice is love in action. And what Brad and I were able to hash out was how someone like himself who attended Columbia Law School and is a public defender in Arlington, Virginia, considered one of the best public defender offices in the state. How it is, what the justice system looks like for the vast majority of people who actually go to trial and are put in prison. I think it is very important for us to keep in mind what a holistic look at justice looks like. Because crime is often looked at as something that happens to me, something that happens to other people I know, single isolated events, not as a social ill, not as a product of a system that is not only breaking down, but is breaking human beings breaking families, breaking communities. And so I'm glad that Brad had a few minutes to sit down and discuss with me about how the criminal justice system in Virginia operates and the advocacy that he does for his clients, along with the incredible work that Justice Forward does. He's a public defender in Arlington, and he's also at the head of Justice Forward Virginia. How are you today, Brad? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm hanging in there. Um, so if you could tell me a bit about yourself, how did you become interested in law? How was that something that you came to? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, uh, when I chose a career, I... I was driven by a desire to help people. So I knew I wanted to help disadvantaged people for a living. After I finished college, uh, I took two years off and it was just during that time was kind of trying to figure out the career where I could best use my abilities and, you know, a place like a type of job that I would enjoy 
and uh, that I would be good at. So I ended up in law, going to law school, and then through law school, it was also a process of trial and error, just trying to figure out uh, within the legal field, um, you know, what type of law was was I drawn to most. I settled on indigent defense. It actually took until really my last semester of law school to finally make that decision. I had thought about doing a lot of other different things, including like legal aid work or policy work. But by the time I was coming close to graduation, I just realized my most enjoyable experience in law school was interning with the Fairfax County Public Defender's Office. And I also just, it felt like it suited my personality and my temperament and felt like a place where I could make a difference and it would be very rewarding. And the rest is history. Very cool. So can you tell me, uh, where did you go to, to, to law school? I actually did my first year at Washington and Lee University. And then I transferred to Columbia University in New York City. Very cool. Did my last two years there. And so law school, is it generally three years or is it four years? Um, people who do night school, it's four years. But for most people, it's three years. Interesting. Very interesting. I also thought about becoming a lawyer when I was in, when I was in high school. The law is, a, is pretty... In terms of like actually remembering it, it's pretty straightforward. But in terms of like actual application to courtrooms, totally different story, which is the reason yeah, why I ran in the, yep. yeah, which is the reason why I ran in the exact opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Can you tell me uh, what were some of your formative experiences like when you were starting to be a public defender? Why did you decide to continue doing that? Because especially for public defenders. Having time really to do anything is incredible. And also on top of that, staying within the field is often very hard because of how yeah. rough the conditions are. Like, what were some of the formative experiences? What were some of your first experiences that you had while doing that? That's also a really interesting question. You're right. I think a lot of people do get burned out. When I started out, I, I knew where I wanted to work. I guess I, I didn't think about it in the way that I think about it now, <clears throat> which is, you know, when, when people ask me where should they go work as a starting public defender, I say, well, first of all, you should go where they need you. There are, there are actually, believe it or not, public defender's offices in the world really don't need a whole lot of help. There are a couple, just a couple of them, but there are lots that really do. Beyond that, you know, I tell people, you don't want to go somewhere that you're not going to be trained well, where you're going to learn bad habits and also where you're not going to have a, you know, a job that's sustainable. So those places also, you know, that's, those are the places that get bad reputation, you know, where the lawyers, they, they say they, they meet them and plead them because, you know, because they just don't have time to do anything else. The place I started out working was Alexandria, the Alexandria Public Defender's Office, okay. Alexandria, Virginia. For, for a long time, they were considered the, one of the, the best, and they still are considered one of the best public defender's offices in Virginia. Over time, over the past 20, 18 years, I've been a lawyer. There have been a number of other offices that have gotten really good, but for a long time there it was Alexandria and almost everybody else like in Virginia. So they had reasonable caseloads and my boss was phenomenal, Melinda Douglas, sort of a legend in, in indigent defense. <laughs> and you know, they just the, the environment, almost like a family environment. Anytime you work at a good public defender's office, the, the work is so stressful and so demanding that you really need that. You need the the um, like-minded people around you who support you and build you up and have got your back when things are bad. That was definitely the kind of place that I, I started out in. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, you witness injustice on a daily basis and it makes it, you get very fired up 
and you motivated to make change, but unless you have those people sitting behind you, it definitely can. And if you're doing it on your own, it can feel impossible. So I was, I was lucky not to be in that situation where it felt impossible. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can imagine, but sort of, I mean, I imagine that you are around people who are in a bad way very often. How do you sort of separate yourself and your defense of them legally from them? Because I imagine that, especially in the case of justice, you know, we're going to, we're definitely going to get into this. In the case of application of law and justice, it's not the sort of way that we look at it overall is simply a, a, a sort of black and white. This is the way the law works. You're either guilty or not guilty or not guilty by any of these reasons or, you know, mistrial with or without prejudice, you know, whatever. But in terms of actual justice, looking at people as whole people, how do you sort of separate yourself from your want and your drive to help people, but at the same time, you know, sort of keep up that wall between yourself and others? No, that's a very common question with anybody who works in service professions, especially who work with indirect service. Uh, great question. I think the, the two hallmarks of a great public defender are that you're zealous and that you're client-centered. And when you talk about being client-centered, really it's, it's the recognition it sounds crazy because, you know, of course, people should always, you should always like treat people like people. If you're walking into a courtroom and seeing 20 different clients every single day, it, yeah, you know, there is human nature sometimes to kick in and you can just feel like you're going through the motions. And like to be client-centered, you're, you're supposed to never just go through the motions. You know, every, every person you encounter, you care about them as a human being, you know, the best for them. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the folks have been through some stuff and a lot of them don't treat you well. A lot of them don't treat other people well, but my duty is to love them in a way that I'm willing to go to the wall for them and do whatever I can to help them out. That's actually kind of what I tell people a lot these days, you know, especially younger public defenders when they're struggling with certain clients or just whatever, the stress of the job. I say, you know, you don't have to like all of your clients. You're not going to like all of them, but you do have to love all of them. That is, that's our obligation. And that's especially true again and if, if we want to be a great public defender's office in Arlington we do we want to be the best we really believe in what we're doing we really love our clients we really are willing to do anything for them that's really incredible that's a fascinating way to, to look at things especially considering that there is I mean correct me if I'm wrong there is no money relation between you and clients right not at all yeah we're paid by the, paid by the state right so that, that's a fascinating way to look at that. It's absolutely fascinating way to look at that, 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 that you bring in the L word, that you show love to people and you serve other people. I mean, it sort of sounds like a dream come true. <laughs> for, I mean, for, in well, you know, I mean, it's not for everyone. You know, our clients are not popular usually. And a lot of them do some, have done some really, really bad things. You know, there are many major religions. They tell you that your humanity is defined by how you treat the least of these or the most, the people who are suffering the worst, the outcasts. And we just think like in our office, it's actually like a lot of our clients have never had somebody on their side. They've had a lot of enemies. I've never had anybody on their side, even including their parents. A lot of them have just not come from a good home environment, never really had somebody advocate for them. So we, we view it as an honor to be that person, you know, the one who will fight for them and who will believe in them. Um, and I do think that's, it's that kind of commitment that's important in our line of work, just given the odds we're facing and you know, the system is so stacked against them. 
that it really does take a like next level type of belief in what we're doing. It's got to be way more than a job. job. It's really got to be a calling in order for us to overcome the odds and balance the scales or do our best to balance the scales. That's really incredible. The way that you mentioned that you fight for people, even though the scales are so imbalanced to their detriment. Tell me, what does your clientele usually look like in terms of skin color, in terms of socioeconomic status? What is the makeup of your client base? Obviously, all of them are, by definition, they're poor. They're people who can't afford to hire their own lawyers. You know, even with that low a bar for indigency, as they call it, I think my office, we handle at least, at least half of all of the misdemeanor criminal cases in our courthouse and probably more like 60 or 70% of all the felony criminal cases. Not only are most of the people who we're representing low income, but most of the people who are being arrested are too. And then demographically, our clients tend to be, I would say 50 or 60% of our clients are black, if not a little more than that, probably... I would guess 10 to 20% are Hispanic. The rest are probably white. And there is a not insubstantial Asian population in Arlington. So uh, that's, and, you know, like just if you look at criminology, you know, most people who are arrested for crimes are men also. So it's overwhelmingly men and young men usually, especially for violent offenses. Because those are like a uniquely young male thing to do is do violent things, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just yeah, yeah. Something about that fourteen to twenty-five age that yeah, it just seems. That's right, that's right. That, yeah, yeah, just something about it. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, like, in terms of the actual makeup of Arlington, Virginia, the actual population of white people alone—you know, people who are not Hispanic or Latino. Just from statistics from 2019, it's like 60% white. And yeah, for 9%, African, 9% black, yep. Yeah, yep. And, and you stated that, you know, around your client base is around 50 to 60%. So it's, it, it's, it's sort of a demonstration of the kind of inequity that there is within society. Oh, for sure, many, yeah. Yeah, and also in many ways how that feeds into the issues that they have and also the issues that they then face within the court system. Yeah. We talk about that a lot in Arlington. There are several ways in which Arlington's justice system is, is really unfair, and that's one of them. For almost every misdemeanor crime, just across the board, even though 9% of the county is, only 9% of the county is Black, usually 50% or more of the people who are being arrested for criminal misdemeanors are Black. When pot was still illegal, it was, the stat, it was 60% of people who were arrested for marijuana possession in Arlington were Black. And that's, which is especially remarkable considering there is no difference in the rate of use between white and black people pot a pot it's almost identical you know and actually it also extends to things like traffic offenses people are charged with driving on suspended and reckless driving almost all again like almost 50 percent right around 50 percent of the people charged with those in arlington are black it's just i mean honestly like you look at it it's like there's no there can there's no other explanation no reasonable explanation other than racism the police and some of the other like police apologists will t- will say, oh, well, like most of the people who are arrested, though, are they're not from Arlington. They're like, well, well, why does that make a difference? I mean, do you think that only non-white people come to Arlington? Like, so you're just, you're like, you're arresting, the, you're arresting everybody, I guess. Just, it, it, it's not an explanation. It doesn't make any sense. That's, and that's what we're dealing with. 
Right, right. I mean, and I imagine when it comes to a police officer or at least a police association saying something like that, that the African-Americans that we are arresting aren't from actually from Arlington. First of all, I mean, you're, you're playing semantics there, saying right. that you are or are not a resident of Arlington. Okay, whatever. But at the same time, that doesn't mean the statistic is not true. The amount of right. people that you are arresting for these low-level offenses and charging these people with criminal, you know, misdemeanors, not even civil citations or civil offenses, are Black. That's what they're doing. I mean, that's the effect yeah. of what they're doing. So, yeah. and yeah, I think I think part of it, like one of the, they, there's like a kernel of like validity to what they're saying, which is that. Like what's really relevant is not who actually lives here, it's who is here doing things on a daily basis because, you know, like who's working here, who's going out into bars and clubs here. But even then, like, what do you think probably the, the proportion of people in Arlington who are black at any given time who, aren't, who don't live here probably can't be more than 20 percent, probably no, no greater than the national. Like they get to instead of being like they, they get basically become like one sixth less racist so the arresting black people <laughs> six times the rate of white people so it's not it's not an explanation it's, I mean, it's just a smoke screen yeah definitely it's meant to obfuscate that point yeah. the point yeah. that you're trying to make which is that justice is disproportionately applied especially considering right. that well over half of the district you know white alone not hispanic or latino at least according to the census data 61 percent of those living within arlington virginia are white and i think that's incredible okay that those statistics are what they are. If you could, can you sort of go into detail about the Virginia justice system? If someone is arrested for, say, something like a reckless driving ticket within Arlington, how does that play out for a person of color? How does that play out for your average client? How does the system work for or against them? Oh, well, that's... That's a big topic. I mean, if you're just dealing with a traffic stop, I mean, there, there are 50 different things, ways in which somebody could be subject to injustice, especially if they're not white, just from a traffic stop. You know, I mean, just the, even starting before, like the point that they're even pulled over in Virginia, not just Arlington, but in Virginia as a whole, you're two times more likely to be stopped by a police officer as a motorist if you're black. You're nearly three times more likely to have your vehicle searched. If they're pulling you over for reckless driving, a lot of the time they're not actually pulling you over for reckless driving or say, say they're, you know, they pull you over for something else. You didn't signal your, your lane change. They're not really, you don't really care about that stuff. You know, what they, the way they use traffic enforcement, the way police do is wage the war on drugs. We call it pretextual policing, basically coming up with any. Right. I just want to point out for everyone at home, as of, I believe it was July 1st of 2020, along with the decriminalization of marijuana, there were also laws introduced with the General Assembly stating that a cop can't just pull you over stating that they smell marijuana and therefore, you know, they get to be able to search the vehicle or they can right. be able to obtain some sort of arrest. There has to be something else that you did before they go about stating that they smell marijuana or something along those lines. And even yeah, in that right, case, right. yeah, and even in that case. So it's, the law says that the odor of marijuana cannot be used as probable cause for uh, the search of someone's vehicle. Period. So, Full stop. Yeah. Okay. Right. Interesting. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to make sure everyone at home knew that because most of the listeners are come from Richmond, but I imagine other people don't know that. But yes, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So if you're if you're a black motorist, it's much less likely that you're just going to be written a ticket or a summons and then be able to go in your way because probably they've pulled you over just because of your skin color. And they're allowed to do that as long as they come up with a good, good enough cover story that, that's actually sanctioned by the Supreme Court of the United States in, in a case called Wren versus United States. So, you know, as a black motorist, you're being pulled over for this. You're thinking, um, well, you're probably not because black people know that that's a dangerous situation. And they're like, uh, what now? And of course, the police officer then does exactly what they expect, tries to obtain consent to search the vehicle, it, it, at the very least, harasses them and interferes with them going about their lives, and also, in doing so, reduces trust in their own institution, the police department. At the, at the worst, something like what Sandra Bland went through. She was contemptuous with the police officer and then into custody as a result and then died. Just more like Fernando Castile. The list goes on. It's a really common, sad outcome, obviously a tragic outcome of that. So hopefully, you know, say you avoid that situation, manage to get past that that point of the process and your issue is summons you end up in court and court process itself entails a whole lot of procedural inequities just from you know like we're talking about so you're maybe you don't uh, have a high income maybe you did get stopped and maybe you're stopped in a place like chesterfield which until this year did not have a public defender's office chesterfield is well known first of all to have really racist police officers but also to have you, a, what do you think you're telling me Chesterfield did not have public defenders? So they didn't have a public defender's office. They had court okay. of, private, court, private court appointed attorneys. Private, private court appointed attorneys, actually, people, a lot of people don't know much about that situation. But yeah, tell me. You're, I'm fascinated. Yeah. Probably like, I'm guessing it's probably three quarters of Virginia, maybe 80% of Virginia live in areas that do have public defender's offices. And in those places, you get in trouble. And you ask for a lawyer, you'll most likely be appointed to a public defender unless the public defender's office has a conflict of interest. Like say they've represented the complaining witness in the case, and then the court will have to appoint somebody from the private bar. But then there are a lot of places that don't have public defender's offices, but they still have a constitutional obligation to appoint counsel. If they can't appoint the public defender, it's sort of like where they do have a public defender, you know, when they have a conflict, they have to, again, find private attorneys. To take those cases. So places like Chesterfield until this year, it was entirely private court-appointed attorneys who were taking taking those cases. And actually, believe it or not, but private court-appointed attorneys get paid even less than public defenders do. So for example, for a, a um, for felonies that are punishable by up, by up to 20 years in prison, the maximum someone can get paid in that case is $445. Yeah, $445. So you go. You could get a ten-year prison sentence, and your lawyer is making four hundred and forty-five dollars. And they know that from the moment they take the case. That unless they get a waiver, and they know going into it that if they actually have to have a jury trial, if they have to take this case all the way, that they might end up being paid five dollars an hour. And then how much? Unless they really are people who are doing it because they believe in it. Unless it's they view it as pro bono work or community service. You know, you're just going to end up getting a, a terrible, terrible, terrible lawyer. And that happens all the time. And um, and then even worse, like in Chesterfield, just like in Arlington, until my office started in um, 2005, the people who actually most ardently opposed the creation of a public defender's office were those court-appointed attorneys. Because you get these, these attorneys who actually can't get any other work because they're just so goddamn bad at their jobs. So they, they rely on the courts to 
basically keep them in business and you know barely keep them in business they don't make much income but they they end up making a living just off of these 445 dollars cases or even worse like criminal misdemeanors plus one misdemeanors you get paid 120 dollars so that's up to a year in jail and you're that would be a reckless driving case by the way getting back to your hypothetical your 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 attorney if you're appointed an attorney for a reckless driving case say it's a bad reckless driving case you've got a bad driving record you know your lawyer is only going to get 120 bucks the representation of your whole case but yeah so like these folks who are making all their living off of these cases making no money at all are the ones often who are most strongly oppose the creation of public defenders offices yeah, it's like this this sort of low-key injustice, low-key like ridiculous thing that happens everywhere. It also happened in Prince William County, the whole Prince William County bar, Prince William County Public Defender's Office was created a year, year and a half ago. And their their bar, their local bar, what would they were the ones that most strongly opposed creation of a public defender's office. It's really ironic and sad. Why do you think that is? Because you know, from the way you describe it, it, it sounds like it could create an incentive or a disincentive for a lawyer to uh, sort of take a case, uh, I don't want to say seriously, but to put their best foot forward in terms of a case. If they are getting paid, say, about $400 or $120, well, how do you think that that impacts their work in, term in the case of a privately appointed attorney? And then also, I guess, number two, the privately appointed attorneys by the court, how do you see their opposition to a public defender's office? How do you make sense of that? Or what does that tell you? What impression does that give you? Well, I, I, I'll give you an example. I, I think I can share a little bit about a, a case that my office had recently. It was a really, it was a ridiculous misdemeanor charge. To, a gentleman was charged with throwing rocks at, or, at a car and he broke the window and he was charged with destruction misdemeanor destruction property no record and um he claimed from the moment he was ticketed or summoned for this got the arrest but he didn't do it it was the this uh, friend of his um who had not been arrested so uh he deserved to have a trial well so my office can put as much resources as we wanted to that and we did and my one of my attorneys took the case to trial and he won. He won in front of a, a jury. But you know how many hours he probably put into that? Like, you know, first of all, there was a trial and there, there were proceedings in the general district court. They're probably two hours, probably obtaining discovery and, re, and reviewing it. There were probably two or three hours worth of in-court proceedings, probably several hours worth of emails and conversations with a client and the prosecutor. And you get up to circuit court and you got to prepare for a jury trial, which itself, you know, you're preparing direct examination, cross-examination, opening argument, opening argument, closing argument. You're actually having to go to the trial and be there for a whole day, not a little bit longer than a full day. You know, by the end of it, my attorney has probably put in 75 hours in this one case. So, I mean, and if he were in private practice or if he were a court-appointed attorney not working in my office, he wouldn't be making the salary. He would be making, like I said, $120. And actually, on that one, I know the maximum waiver, like additional amount you can get paid in some cases is another $120. So say you put in, make it easy math, you put in 80 hours on that case and he'd be paid $250, $240 for that. Like that'd be $3 an hour for somebody who's got probably $100,000 of law school debt, if not more. You have to really, really believe in something a lot to be able to go into debt just to help somebody out for a rock throwing case 
But I mean, that one rock throwing case really changed this guy's life. He was arrested for it. He was, he was, he was at risk of having a criminal record for the rest of his life. And he was at risk of even going to jail, potentially. The jail, the, the jury or the judge was bad. Not everybody is super principled. And even if you are principled, you know, sometimes pr- principles run up against practical reality of just being able to feed your family or pay your rent. You know, we've got a system where, especially like private court appointees, frankly, the way they're paid, all that's, that's all they did. They, they, that's the choice they have to make every day. Either I can do a good job or I can pay my rent. You know, if you're, you're talking about why, where the opposition comes from, that's really it. I think right. you get some people who, they just, this becomes their, becomes what they're used to. Maybe they went to the work thinking, like, I want to help the world. I really want to help people. And then five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 15 down, years down the road, it just becomes more of like an assembly line, an assembly line justice. And they, one person on the, that assembly line. And then unfortunately, like in Arlington, that's exactly what happened. That was what our what our entire courthouse was like before they started the public defender's office, and quite frankly, even after the public defender's office started in Arlington. And then the judges get used to it. The judges expect that they'll, they'll have defense attorneys that don't try at all. And then if you have you do have defense attorneys who try, like my office does, then they'll get like offended that you're trying. You know, <laughs> they just they they expect that they don't expect zealous client-centered representation, and it's. It's really sad to see, but that's state courts. I, people, people are learning a lot about state courts recently with like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. State courts are just a, it's just a circus most days and, and nothing happens the way that the constitution would dictate that they would happen or that people would hope they would happen. It's, it's really just a different world in most state courts. Right, right. And so, you know, that's fascinating, the fact that you do bring up that if you're only being paid a certain amount per case, right, not only do you want to have a certain amount of cases, I mean, there's naturally sort of an arithmetic that you're going to do, especially, if, of course, you have to pay rent, you have bills to pay. But at the same time, not having access to records, having to go out of your, essentially your own pocket, because you are a privately appointed public defender, without the resources of an office of the state to do that work. I can see how that would greatly diminish the ability of someone to have an adequate defense. Yep. And this is what's crazy. So, you know, over the years, public defenders have gotten a certain reputation among some people. And maybe there was time that was true. But these days, the best lawyers in most courthouses are public defenders. And that's true in Fairfax. It's true in Arlington. It's true in Richmond. You know, it's true in a lot of places in Tidewater. We're just like, it's the, the usual suspects from the, the quarter-pointed bar. What you, you, you probably want as a true believer, a public defender is going to go to the wall for you. Right, right. Okay. You stated earlier that court cases don't often go the way that the way that the Constitution would have it be the case. Can you sort of go into that for me a little bit? Because it sounds um... almost... You know, because it sounds almost sort of contradictory to say that the document that sets up the court system and the way that it's supposed to go somehow doesn't really apply in a courtroom. It seems like contradictory, but I'm yeah. guessing that in, in reality, it's not. No, um, we've got a Bill of Rights with 10, or 10 rights in the Bill of Rights. Four of them are entirely about the rights of a, the person charged with a crime in a jury trial. So it's it's right to due process. It's right to be free from self-incrimination. It's right to be to have a uh, an effective attorney. 
That's right to be free from unlawful searches and seizures, excessive punishment, or cruel and unusual punishment. Those are just a bunch of the things that are incorporated in the fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth amendments. And um, so, you know, obviously, not, well, not all of them are directly related to a jury trial, but they're rights of a criminal defendant. So, but, you know, you'd think, right, the people who wrote the Constitution, obviously, the foundational documents of our democracy are about the rights of defendant and the rights of people to be free from government interference, you know, when they're investigating crimes and all that, like that, we ought to treat those things seriously. But just over the decades and centuries, each one of those rights has been chipped away at, really have very little force anymore. The Fourth Amendment is the one people know about the most, but freedom to be, you know, we just talked about Ren versus United States and pretextual policing. And that the, the police can, because of the number of crimes we have in the criminal code or traffic violations or reason you, you can stop a pedestrian, police can, almost anything they want, almost at any time they want, based on just a win. And they can even do it because of your skin color if they lie about it. They lie about the real reason of doing it. So that's just one example, but take each one of those rights, just go down the list. They've been chipped away at over the years. Where That's how we find ourselves where we're at at this point. That's very interesting, especially in the case of court cases. Of course, everyone knows the fourth uh, against unreasonable search and seizure. The fifth has quite a few different parts to it. You know, in the case of the Fifth Amendment, the last part of it has to do with the state being able to take property. It's not really until almost you get to the very end of the Fifth Amendment. Are we actually talking about rights of a defendant not to be forced to testify against yourself? And so I believe also within the Fifth Amendment, it states that you can't be tried more than once for the same crime. Is that right? Yep. Beyond that one, also, you know, you get to the Seventh Amendment where it says anytime that there is a bit of civil litigation that's over $20, you have the right to ask for a jury trial. And so that is interesting that you point out that a good chunk of the first 10 amendments have to do with rights of the defendant in the case of yep. criminal trials. Even the Seventh Amendment addresses solely civil trials. And then the Eighth Amendment has to do with cruel and unusual punishment itself. Cruel and unusual punishment in the case United States court system and penal system is a very interesting definition compared to the rest of the world, considering we are probably one of the only countries in the world that has a specific amendment against cruel and unusual punishment to be phrased like that. And yet we have such an inhumane and cruel system, particularly against poor or black and brown people. Yep. Our new attorney general elect, Mr. Jason Viaris, recently announced that he was looking to have the attorney general's office intervene between a Commonwealth attorney and a defendant if a police chief or a sheriff makes a request to his office. Yep. So really, for everyone who doesn't know the difference between a Commonwealth attorney and the attorney general's office in Virginia, can you go into that dichotomy? And then we're going to go into why that's probably one of the craziest things that I've heard <laughs> yeah. out of the Young administration. And that came out like, what, a day, maybe two days later. It didn't take him 48 hours. Yeah. So in Virginia... Well, each judicial circuit, uh, at least, but most cities and counties have an elected Commonwealth attorney, and that's a chief prosecutor for that jurisdiction. And that person is in charge of prosecuting all criminal cases that come through the courts. They also set locally, they traditionally set you know, criminal justice policy. They've been thought to be in many places, not just Virginia, but 
local country to be the most powerful actors in any local system of justice. Uh, and by the way, in most other states, they're called district attorneys. So in some places they're called parish attorneys, but Virginia, we call them commonwealth attorneys because we are a commonwealth. And so traditionally, the attorney general has had very little power over criminal cases, or over the trial of criminal cases. They, they, their involvement in criminal cases is restricted to things like um, when you defraud the state government. For example, Medicare fraud would be a, an example. They also, I think, can get involved in some child porn cases, and there's a few other categories, really limited though, and they only can get involved in criminal cases with the consent of the Commonwealth, local commonwealth attorneys. So, so as a practical matter, the attorney general's office is almost only ever involved in a criminal case if, uh, on, oh, sorry, on appeal. So they, they have an appellate division where they represent the, the, um, the commonwealth on appeal, but they, they almost never in court, like actually prosecuting cases and trying cases. It's just something that isn't done anywhere, let alone Virginia. So what you know, Miars is proposing to do hijack the, that job from every local commonwealth attorney. And yeah, like you said, put it in the hands of the police chief or the sheriff. So basically giving the sheriff more discretion over the prosecution policy or the police chief more discretion than the person who was elected to actually exercise that discretion. This is not his idea. This has been done in a number of other states, at least they've tried and it's never been successful. They tried it in, I know they tried it in, in um, Missouri, for example. So even in, in states that are much redder than ours, it, it's tried and failed. I quite frankly think it's just grandstanding by ours. It stands no chance of passing. And I frankly don't think that even most Republicans would vote for it. It, it can go both ways. If you end up with a more liberal attorney general, you could end up having the attorney general barnstorming on issues that are popular right. um, you know, law enforcement issues that are popular among progressive amongst progressives that are not popular amongst conservatives like you know, gun control right right and you know you know the fact that you stated that it has very little chance to to actually pass the state legislature is really where our discussion sort of started a few weeks ago and the discussion that bird and organizer memes had put together and, you know, at the time I had asked you, I was like, really, do you not think that it has legs considering how, <laughs> and of course I have Thaddeus Stevens as my Abby and I'm talking about radical Republicans, but, <laughs> but, you know, considering how I would say rabid Republicans are and sort of how lockstep they are when it comes to a punitive view of justice. It's interesting that you mentioned that it has no chance because there was recently a senator, a state senator, a Democrat from Roanoke, his name is John Edwards, who stated, there's no chance at all that's going to pass. That's a quote. Another quote is, he has no authority under the Constitution and the likelihood of the General Assembly granting him that authority is zero. It's not going to happen in the Senate of Virginia and not in my committee, end quote. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that says it all. Yeah, I just, I like how quick and how succinct the shutdown was of like, yeah, that idea is not going to actually happen. It's nice that he wants yeah. that, but that's not how we do business here in Virginia. And just the way that he says the likelihood of the General Assembly granting him that authority is zero. It's not yeah. going to happen in the Senate of Virginia and not in my committee is incredible. Right. That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. 
so yeah so yeah that's amazing that is sort of what you had indicated beforehand i mean not quite in those words <laughs> but that's sort of what indicated beforehand and you brought up that point before that i remember when mark herring was sort of running on in the attorney general's race a few years ago with ralph northam ralph northam wasn't even quite running uh that aggressively on gun control but mark herring was making this case that you know we need to go about making these gun laws within Virginia, and especially this was in the aftermath of Charlottesville, right? Charlottesville happens in the summer of 2017, and he's basically campaigning throughout that summer and into the fall, and he's making the case that we need gun safety and gun control laws within Virginia. Even though he's attorney general and he doesn't have any sort of legislative authority, he is making this case that not only, and even Back then, he was making the argument that we needed to decriminalize marijuana. And that was well before the governor had stated that he was interested in doing so, Terry McCullough. And on top of that, that was before Ralph Northam had stated he was going to be doing so. I mean, Tom Perriello had stated at the time, and I remember I had asked Tom Perriello to his face when he came to VCU, you know, it was something like 64% of Virginians want the legalization of marijuana. Why, if, if you're the left flank, of Ralph Northam. Why in the world, if Colorado is already legalized, I mean, at this point, it's 2017. I imagine a few other states did as well in 2016. But like, why in the world aren't you running on legalizing? And a lot of people, when they think about legalizing marijuana, everyone like laughs, snorts, you know, haha, pot, weed, right? It's a issue of justice. It's an issue of not having people locked up on a pretext of some substance that they have, right? right? And it's about the unequal application of that power of search and seizure when you live in a society that's as racist as ours, and when you have a society as unequal as ours. That is something that Mark Herring was making that case for. But it's interesting, the reason why I mention that is local Commonwealth attorneys throughout the state of Virginia, because they are elected in the state of Virginia, they state that they were going to battle back against this by essentially just not enforcing those laws. And you also had sheriffs and, and police chiefs also coming out stating that they just simply weren't going to enforce those laws, regardless of what the state legislature or Mark Herring did. And so it's interesting to me that they would now do this sort of about face when it comes to Jason Miaris to say, no, actually, it shouldn't be the Commonwealth attorney that asked the AG to step in or excuse me, it should be the police chief who asked the attorney general to step in. Now, very often yeah. the case of a police chief, especially here in Richmond, they are not elected. <laughs> okay. They are appointed. They are an apparatchik of the executive within the city, namely the mayor. In some cases, the city council has a vote. In some cases, it's just the mayor that makes the appointment. But the reason why I mention all that is that separation of powers is something that Republicans have used over and over and over again when it comes to Virginia. And it's very interesting to me that he's just sort of making this authoritarian grab to go about going after people. And I just want to read you a quick quote from this article. It's, uh, it's called Radio IQ WVTF. And he states, Jason Miaris states, in all of this discussion about criminal justice reform, the media talks about, you know, the person they never talk about, victims. They don't talk about the victims. And that has been a central plank of why I ran and a central plank of what got me elected 
So I'm going to end the criminal first, victims last mindset and have a victims first, criminals last mindset. If you have to let that simmer a minute, because I mean, I mean, I totally understand. I'm, <laughs> like I mean, I'm, no. I'm used to him. I've been dealing with him for four years. So I know really, how about. so? Really, how so? He's, he's been a delegate. So yeah, he's yeah. Propo- always proposes nutty legislation, yeah. shows up at committee hearings and he'll uh, carry on about Brock Turner. It's almost like Brock Turner is like a member of the Democratic Party at times, just the way that Miaris talks about him. And always is always ready to drag in some family member of a police officer who was killed, regardless of whether there's any relevance at all of that testimony. Like there was last year when he uh, was opposing the repeal of the assault and law enforcement statute. And there was someone, I believe it came at his behest to testify. And her husband, sadly, tragically, was killed in the line of duty, but the bill had absolutely nothing at all to do with capital murder of a police officer. It was the class six felony of assault on a law enforcement officer, which most often doesn't even entail any force or any injury. 90% of uh, police officers who have enforcement cases have no injury whatsoever, and only only 5% have actual injury. So that's just him. That's what he that's what he does. Right, right. And so, I mean, especially when we talk about it being a class six felony and you're talking about assaulting a police officer, a lot of people are like, oh my God, how in the world could you try and take down the assault of a police officer in terms of legislation? Are you saying their lives aren't important and all the rest of that stuff? I'm going to set that aside for just a second. In the case of having people arrested, particularly black and brown people, because as Brad was just stating that when it comes to black and brown people within Arlington, they are the overwhelming majority of people who are pulled over, searched, detained, charged, arrested, tried. That is the sort of mindset that goes into it. And so if you are already within a mindset that you need some sort of pretext to search someone's car and you no longer have the odor of marijuana and you have to use, you know, your blinker is out or something along those other lines, when you are arresting someone, particularly if you don't have a body camera on, you can make the case and your hood just so happens to be up on your car for some strange reason at a traffic stop obstructing the dash cam, then you could make the claim that someone who maybe flinched when or winced when you put their arms behind their back and tried to actually arrest them or say they tried to get away from you after you scared them because you have your hand on a gun or a taser or some other means of force, deadly or otherwise, it is a way to go about arresting people and keeping them within jail most often by stating that you have assaulted an officer. It's a pretext crime to go about keeping people who they would rather not have out free for this or that reason. That's why you would do something like that. So I thought I might just put that there. But in the case of like actually having Jason Miaris get up and talk about Brock Turner, why would he get up and talk about Brock Turner? Like, I mean, just, I, like I, I, I'm assuming well, it's, it's not it's for all, any personal all, reason, right? I, I, I'm, no, I'm no, sure. It's all, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's not any personal reasons. I think he brought up Brock Brock Turner arguing against the repeal of mandatory minimums. But I mean, the problem with all of this is that he's just really comfortable lying, and that's what the the theme that you always (laughs) see. I mean, well, I'm not, I'm not not even. It's just the fact. Yo, I mean, it's it's funny. I totally understand. 
everything he says, most everything he says is just not true. And, you know, like when he says that we have a criminal first policy, I mean, living in a country that has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prison population, like we incarcerate people five times the rate of any other developed nation, you know, and like we spend more on police and or we spend more on police than all but uh, two countries spend on their militaries, you know, and one of those countries is the United States. We are spending so much on uh, law enforcement on exactly the thing he says we're not focused enough on. So it's just like he says that puts everybody on the defensive, like, oh, you're not, that's not true. Or and just like he was doing with the parole board. I mean, he ran a whole campaign based on something that was repealed 27 years ago. You know, no one really bothered to rebut that at all, any of his claims about it. But you know, that's just how it goes. And I, I think for him, he thinks he can become a successful politician by lying his way you know, through campaigns. And I, and I think this this is the most recent lie is the, the whole um, rogue prosecutor thing and coming up with this idea, this is, he's allowed to do this. It's just controversial, it gets him attention. He probably, want, he probably run, wants to run for Senate in 2024. So good for him, you know, it's just, it's, it's, yeah, I hate that people even take it seriously, but I guess you have to. Yeah, because now he's in, office at the attorney general i mean he, he's the attorney general elect and so that's yep. who we're going to listen to for the next four years well here's else. here's what's funny though say he doesn't succeed as he won't succeed with his plan to actually become the top cop of everywhere and just be <laughs> right say he doesn't succeed with that well you know what believe it or not like the attorney general's office isn't going to change much at all because right. the dirty little secret about mark herring's office is that they would defend any criminal case on appeal. They would argue against any claim of ineffective assistance of counsel by a bad criminal defense lawyer. His staff on criminal appeals were notoriously horrendous and they can't get worse. So they won't get worse with Miara's. That won't make it, really the only thing Miara's will make a difference is with policy setting. And then with, I don't know, maybe he'll, hopefully maybe he'll help Republicans lose some elections in the future by saying crazy shit. Like you said, with this uh, prosecutor idea, I think that's the best that we can hope for with him, him and Winsome Sears. Just keep, keep opening your mouth, guys. <laughs> like, keep opening your mouth and maybe maybe the Dems will win back a majority. Right, right. I mean, and they narrowly lost it this time. I mean, we did lose, they did lose, you know, seven seats. And even across those seven seats, I mean, it was just a few thousand votes. I think it was maybe about a thousand votes that separated Democrats from their majority and I mean, it was now. For, for between Mugler and Askew, the last two, it was just a little, I think it was right around 200 votes. So right. flip those two and it's 50-50. 200 votes for the whole state. It's crazy. And yeah, I mean... I, and and I, what, what what did um, Young Kid end up winning by? It was 60 or 70,000? Was that it? It wasn't yeah. many. I mean, that, I mean, that's really it. And that's exactly what, you know, me and Chipman and me and Samir were talking about, which is just, was just this idea, like, you really couldn't, you, you couldn't find... 60, 70,000 votes in Hampton, Newport News, Portsmouth, Norfolk, Richmond, Petersburg, Arlington, Fairfax, Alexandria, like Loudoun, you, like Prince William, you couldn't find 
those 60,000 votes? No, I think it was more like you got $50 million and you set it on fire is what you did. You gave Maybe. it away to like, yeah, right. <laughs> you gave it away to- I mean, I, I, blame, I, I, mean I, I blame McAuliffe much more than I blame, much more than I credit Youngkin or any, or Miara's or anything they did. Right, I mean, which is- I mean, exactly at, the, at the very least, if you, if the very least if McAuliffe even just tries to respond to some of the false claims about criminal justice, just or, you know, allows people in that coordinated campaign to respond, which apparently they weren't, they were told not to do. They were told whenever it comes up, the issue of criminal justice reform just deflect and in many, in a couple cases, adopt Republican framing. Well, you know, you end up doing that. You're not going to win. If people are concerned about crime, the other side is always going to be tougher on crime than you are. Instead of giving into the lie, how about responding to the lie? And maybe if you if you do, you always win those arguments. I've never lost a debate about criminal justice reform. Never. <laughs> and that's not saying anything about me. It's just because I'm right. We're, we're on the, the side of justice. We're on the right side. So we ought to respond to it. So that's, that's the way I look at it. Maybe if you do have somebody actually responding to these claims about parole or defunding the police or rogue attorney or um, commonwealth attorneys, then maybe the trickle-down effect of everybody disliking Terry McAuliffe, maybe it doesn't get to Harry. Maybe you do flip 100 votes and ask you or Muggler's district and you just lose the governor's mansion and not everything else. You know, in the case of Jason Miaris, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, he's a compulsive liar. And I, I mean, I'm guessing, at least in his mind, and this is my guess, he sees himself as the next Marco Rubio. I, I, I think that's where he's coming from. Now, I think in terms of like actual like congressional elections, Tim Kaine is way too well liked in Virginia for it to ever even come close. He beat Corey Stewart by 16 points. Like it literally wasn't even close. It was some ridiculous number. It really was ridiculous. Corey Stewart could not have been a worse candidate. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I mean, he wrapped himself around Donald Trump around the time of Charlottesville. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand. I get where you're coming from. But even before then, Tim Kaine is is not an easy Democrat to beat in Virginia. He is right. very well entrenched here and really by almost everyone, he is well liked outside of like hardcore Republicans, which is the reason why he often wins with the margins that he does. But the reason why I mentioned that is this push by the Attorney General's office to do that, or at least at the very least, the push by Attorney General-elect Jason Miaris to to say these sorts of things out in public, says ostentatious things sort of all the time. And I think the statement that you made there that if we are not making the argument against that, or at least dispelling the myths that they are telling, that is a problem. And I don't even think dispelling the myths is enough, because the default itself is not good. Michelle Alexander talks about in the new Jim Crow, in the beginning, she was not very interested at all in criminal justice issues. And it wasn't until a few years later where she essentially came back to the same place physically where she was, where she really understood the role that the criminal justice system has in enforcing a racial caste system within the United States. And so I think it's incumbent upon us and anyone who would advocate for justice or you know something that we would call love would be to make an affirmative case against the sort of lies that he tells that defunding the police is an anti-public safety issue when in fact we all know that defunding the police and keeping MRAPs out of the hands of cops and keeping sniper rifles out of the hands of cops is a public safety issue 
that needs to be done. Cops shouldn't have assault rifles when they enter people's homes. Cops shouldn't right. have qualified immunity. Those are affirmative arguments that we should be making, that yeah. there is no reason why police officers should be immune for civil and criminal consequences. Because when you act completely without any consequences, without any sort of checks on your authority, and you have power of life and death, freedom and imprisonment, I mean, there needs to be some level of accountability. I mean, we, the, the Richmond police chief is out there whining to LeVar Stoney talking about how a civilian review board is somehow going to damage morale. And I'm like, dude, yeah, it's going to damage morale if anything that you do can't be overseen. And of course, I, I think someone pointed out, it might have been you who pointed this out, which is that police obviously admit that surveillance is a good thing, but it's surveillance of them that they don't want. On so many of these topics, you know, like I said, it's if you bar, bother to have the debate, if you bother to have the conversation, you win. It's because we're, we we tr truly like we're on the right side of this. And the the thing that makes just makes me so aggravated is people just don't they don't they don't they don't have a conversation. They get scared of it. And even with stuff like you know, we were trying to repeal all mandatory minimums last year, people all get skittish about some of the more controversial mandatory minimums, like exactly. mandatory minimums for sex offenses. It's like, well, really, I mean, truthfully, like, does everybody who ever commits certain sex offenses, should they all die their very last breath in prison? And I think that's not true. I mean, all you got to say to some people is like, well, you know what, some people who are adults, who commit certain sex offenses, like they might have developmental disabilities. They can't rely on, on insanity. And it's their developmental disability that contributed to something like that. And just that one example, people will be like, oh, okay, I can see that. And then you're like, you proved your point. Well, shouldn't a judge have discretion in that case? Should that person who, you know, has a, you know, IQ of 68 and maybe uh, has a social age of 16 you know should that person really in you know to be treated the same way as somebody who like tackles somebody off of a running path you know but of course not and and you know if you don't bother just to have that basic conversation nobody ever believes anything different and people don't get informed and then you still have you know Jason Miara screaming, screaming Brock Turner all over the place so you know it's like I don't know I think what was funny, actually, I was on a panel the other day. I don't know how I got roped into this, but it was Arlington County Police Department, their Citizen Police Academy. Um, they asked me to speak the past two years. And I'm like, if you guys are doing this, yeah, okay, fine. You probably do need a different perspective, so I'll show up. And we spent, me and Thomas Turney was there, and there was a judge there. One thing we were talking about was like crime rates. And this was another narrative that was getting into the press and into populace, and it just wasn't true. People believe there was a crime wave over the past year when crime, in fact, in Virginia has gone down 10%. I go through the stats, one after the next, just talking about how crime's down in Virginia, crime's down in these specific areas. The only type of crime that's increased in Virginia and most states is gun violence. And it's weird. It's weird that that's the one crime that's gone up when all other crimes of violence even have gone down, like rapes and robberies. And, you know, obviously I know what I'm talking about. Obviously I did the research. And this is stuff, by the way, they're, they're cops sitting to the left of me. They're the ones who publish this crime data. So like nobody's lying about this. And then of course you have two hands go up in the audience and one person says, I just don't believe this. Like I'm on next door and my neighbors on next door say their car just got got broken into. And I just like almost actually literally face palmed. But I mean, if that's right. what you're dealing with, of course they've been told this for the past six months. They've been told this 
they, they have to be afraid. And they've been told mainly by people like Yaris and Youngkin. Like, they, we, you, you must be afraid. There's this terrible crime wave. And frankly, you know, also the media doesn't help much. And if, they, if they're all saying this, then somebody just coming in one day and saying like, hey, you know, uh, here's what's actually, actually going on. They're just so entrenched. You know, more people got to be doing it. And more people got to be committed to this, to actually speaking the truth about these things. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, for sure. I mean, and and that's sort of the thing that I'm getting at here is, you know, with, with no one making these affirmative cases, these affirmative cases of like, yeah, no, actually, we should be defunding the police because MRAPs and sniper rifles and assault weapons and the latest technology in terms of whatever other crap it is that they want, new license plate readers, a whole new fleet of SUVs, all the rest of that stuff has nothing to do with public safety. Well, you don't even, none, you don't even none of that has even... anything to do with people yeah. breaking into your car because the economic system is failing a vast majority of the American people and is creating yeah. situations that people have literally no way out of. Or yeah. crimes that are not just crimes of desperation, but crimes of maldevelopment by poverty, by locking people out of their homes, by locking people out of a high wage economy by way of them not being able to get a college education, by the inability of people to go to universal pre-K and go to kindergarten, which are shown to dramatically increase the chances that you graduate high school and college. And once you do get to those points, those criteria dramatically reduce your likelihood to go about making crime. So yeah. these affirmative cases that we are not making are costing us. And, you know, Mark Herring may not go out there and say stuff like that because he's scared that he doesn't want to step out of line, not only with McCullough, God help us, but, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, because like we forget Kamala Harris was attorney general out in California. Like she was top cop. She was locking up parents in California for truancy. Yeah. She was locking up kids for truancy. Truancy is not being in school. Like, are, are you serious? I mean, this is someone who kept people in prison while marijuana was being legalized in the state. Yeah. Kept people in prison. Fought to yeah. make sure that that happened. Specifically, her office stated, not her, but her office stated, a part, one of the reasons why was for labor reasons. And because the United States, the 13th Amendment states that once you've been convicted of a crime, any crime, really, it doesn't state felony, it doesn't state misdemeanor, right? Any crime, you can become a slave of the state, literally. Yeah, and so that was, the, that was the firefighters, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, and so for many people who aren't familiar, in the case of California and many other states, critical state functions like in the case of place like back home for me in Chesapeake, a lot of the landscaping that is done on public property is all done by slaves, by prisoners who are forced to work. If you don't work inside of a prison, it's not like, oh, well, you just sit in your cell. No, you are actively punished. That is a reason to go after you. That is a reason to punish you if you refuse to work for nothing or for next to nothing, like since an hour, which is often what imprisoned firefighters are paid. So I, I, I just think it's incumbent upon us that we make these arguments forcefully, that we make them loud, and that, yeah. that, and that 
we recognize in the face of, because I'm going to get back to Jason Miaris in front of these, I'm going to get back to the, the General Assembly. I, I want to make this point that we don't make these points and we sort of skirt away from these points because of lies of white supremacy and lies of white supremacy, lies of neo-Nazis, lies of racists are what cost Heather higher her life. Like she died along with one other person being run over by a car because of white supremacist lies, because of Nazi lies. And it's the same lie, well, it's, it's the same line of lies that comes from the reactionary right within society that effectively we are gonna be replaced and we have to go about repressing you because you are inherently within your difference to us being skin tone, you are inherently a threat to our purity as a society. It's our society, not our as in like we, our as in like us, or excuse me, it's us white people who have this country, not anyone else. And we have to do what we can to preserve that majority whether socially, economically, politically, racially, whatever means that is. But I think it's interesting that you state that no one makes those arguments back. And the reason why they don't make those arguments back is because you had Republicans last year dragging, and even some conservative Democrats, dragging victims' families in front of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, stating my significant other, my friend, my family member was murdered, raped, mugged, I mean, you know, you name it. And I don't want to repeal of mandatory minimums because that means that their death meant less and that there's no argument against that. There's no reflex to say that's not in fact what justice is about. What justice is about is about making sure this stuff doesn't happen again, not to simply punish people. With Jason Miaris's lies, I, I do want to ask that question. Why do you think those arguments are so difficult for people to make? Uh, I think most people are just un, like uninformed. They're ignorant. You know, I mean, more cynically, they don't think it wins elections. I mean, I can tell you, you know, who are the people who are affected by a, a really tough criminal justice system? It's like we've been talking about people who are not white, usually, usually people who are poor. So those people don't have a lot of political influence. McCullough thought his winning, his way to win a governorship was through white women that's what's really what he, his whole all of his messaging was going toward apparently and that's what i was told or what i've heard and didn't really spend a whole lot of time doing outreach to black voters that's the mindset the mindset that those people people who are affected by the criminal justice system people who care about it they aren't going to win you elections but even beyond that i also like i said the first thing i said was people are ignorant and i think that's definitely true that people really are I am a white man, and I like a lot of Arlington is white. And quite frankly, most people live near me in my county. They have no idea what's going on in our local criminal justice system, just because they aren't directly affected by it. So they don't really know right. all the, the injustice that occurs, even just the sort of mundane injustice that occurs on a daily basis. So if you don't know what's happening, you know, it's, you're definitely more manipulable and you know, it's not going to be something like if you end up being in the public sphere, like some of these candidates, you you don't care about it. You don't know about it. Right. So it's it's left to just a small group of advocates trying to get everybody's attention or 
more tragically, just you wait till that moment, the moments, the periodic moments every three or five years when a black man dies at the hand of police and then white people can't look away anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, and I, and I think you're exactly right, which is that. Actually, let me, let me oh, correct myself. Black, black people, black people die at the hands of police way more often than that. I, I just right, meant I the really visible, the really visible public ones, like George Floyd or, you know, Jameer Rice, so forth, so on. Right. I mean, when you sit on someone for nine minutes after knowing them, like working with them for 17 years, I don't know if you knew that, but like George Floyd and Officer Chauvin, they knew each other. They worked together at a bar called El Nuevo Rodeo across the street, the grocery store where George Floyd was murdered. They worked together at a nightclub for 17 years. He knew George. And so that's why I often state, like, I, I don't necessarily, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a, it, it's kind of conception, you know, it's kind of like the line between a police murder and a, a, a white supremacist terror attack. That's sort of what the difference is. But I think regardless, I think it's interesting that a white supremacist and a pre, what to me is an obvious premeditated murder. There's a part of that story that we don't know to this day. And that's because George is not around to tell it that there, there was something that, especially how closely connected George Floyd and Derek Chauvin in terms of like social circles were, something went down. I don't know what went down, but it died with George Floyd. And we will never know the truth of that. But that's just my speculation. But my point is, is that white supremacy embodied in police, embodied in the badge, right? And on top of that, embodied in this cold-blooded, in my opinion, premeditated murder is obviously a way to go about making that case. It's obviously a way to demonstrate to people the kind of connection between policing and racism and white supremacy is. You mentioned earlier that, you know, people would get up and say, well, you know, my neighbor's car just got broken into. How are you saying that there's not a crime wave? That is sort of the way that we have left the criminal justice conversation or so-called justice conversation, which is sort of this very atomized, individualized, where I live, if it happened to me or my family, my friends, my significant others, you know, it's not an overarching idea of what investment in community looks like, of what giving people services such as food, water, electricity, gas, heat, AC, access to public broadband, things along those lines, having those be available for everyone in society so that we have a, at the very least, a level playing field in terms of access to critical resources are there in order so that we are not making the mistake of simply blaming people for the system. I mean, in my mind, it's almost like trying to perform an experiment correctly, <laughs> okay? You wanna make sure the control is control, okay? <laughs> you wanna make sure that everything that you can do in order to prevent crime, and we know ways to prevent crime, we reduce exposure to toxins and PAHs and lead, we encourage people to, or encourage people, we have universal pre-K childcare and kindergarten, and we actually allow people to go to college and school. 
we don't lock them up over over frivolous drug charges or other things like that. There are several parts to this that are not talked about. And so when we leave that ground to the right to make these sorts of reactionary arguments, we end up in a situation like we are, where not only do people not understand, but also a white supremacist can walk into a crowd with a gun murder two people and shoot a third multiple times and very well could get away with it. I, I do thank you for your time, man. I, I thank you for your commentary. It, it was incredible to speak to you. Glad that you were able to bring some light to how so-called criminal justice system and Virginia works for the poorest and the black and brown. And it's incredible the, the kind of work that you do. I do wanna ask you though, one more question. Sure. What were some of the motivations in creating Justice Forward and what does Justice Forward do and what are your plans in the future in response to Miaris and Yunkin if there are any changes in terms of plans? The reason I started Justice Forward in April of 2017 was because for decades, if not centuries, the tough on crime lobby controlled Richmond. And there really wasn't a, any group that served as a counterweight to the influence of groups like Virginia Association of Commonwealth Attorneys. So as a result of that, if they're the tough on crime folks are the only ones who are ever down there, who are ever advocating, then it, it makes sense why our justice system has incrementally got harsher, gotten harsher and harsher and why you know, our prison population has gone up tenfold over the past 50 years. And so as a lawyer, I the only time I would ever hear about any anyone doing any kind of advocacy for the defense would be in these email listservs, defense attorney listservs. And you'd get an email from Scott Servell usually because he's a defense attorney and a senator. And Scott would say something like, oh, there's this ter terrible bill that just made it out of the house. Like, you have to call your senators now. we got to kill this bill. It just dawned on me, like, why aren't there people on the other side, on our side, who are working on this, not in this week, not in this day, have to make panic phone calls or emails, but who have been working for the year before that to write legislation and get sponsors and you know get it passed and hopefully hopefully actually you know reverse sort of that that constant trend towards um, punishment and prosecution and all that. So that's that's where it, that's why why I started it. You know, I mean, same motivation as why I wanted to be a public defender. I just saw that there was a need to fight in another sort of adversarial process. So yeah, that's that's why we started. And believe it or not, at that time there wasn't a single, there wasn't a single statewide organization that made criminal justice reform its only business. Um, there were groups that would jump in on it here and there, like ACLU of Virginia sometimes, Legal Aid Justice Center sometimes with like juvenile issues. But we were the first one ever to just make it, this is what we do. Um, and over time, there have been a number of other great organizations that have started. Now we have a really solid statewide criminal justice reform advocacy or community. And it's very collaborative. People get along really well and do a lot of good work together. So we, we've now at this point, although we started as a PAC actually, we reorganized as a nonprofit in the middle of last year and recognizing that what had become our strength really was legislative advocacy. So policy development, legislative advocacy, because we're all 
the leadership team of Justice for Virginia are all current public defenders. So we know the law really well. We know the real problems, not the ones that Niaras talks about or um, whoever else, you know, Honestly, it's there. Are, there are like there's like a uh, there's like a mirror image of I don't know if it's a mirror image. There's sort of like a analog to Miara's on the left, which are um, you know you got these national publications who get fixated on certain criminal justice issues that actually don't make much of a difference. Like one of the ones that always comes up is private prisons. So we got one private prison in Virginia, and it's by far it's far from the worst. And people think, oh, we got to get rid of private prisons. No, 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 we got to get rid of prisons. We don't just have to get rid of the private ones. Like Precisely. all the prisons, like all the all the prisons are bad, not just the private ones. Um, Precisely. But, you know, uh, some of these candidates who get involved, and they, they think, "Oh, I got to say something about criminal justice reform," and then they'll write in their policy platform, like running Virginia, Virginia statewide office. We must get rid of, rid of uh, private prisons. And you just think to yourself, "Like, wow, you really have not thought about this issue at all." <laughs> so you know, we thought saw a need for subject matter experts who understood really what the, the great, where the greatest injustice occurred Virginia system. And so we've been working on, I think it's been three really successful sessions and had a, gotten a lot of bills passed, but we're, we are accustomed to working with legislatures that aren't on our side. Like the Democrats didn't even have the house until 2019. Right. So right, like right. we had a couple sessions where we had to deal with Rob Bell as the chair of courts <laughs> of justice and everything just died in his committee and had to play a lot of defense. So I'm accustomed to it. The thing about Virginia legislators, which is really weird to me, it's, um, and I think a lot of advocates don't do this pivot really well, but um, so all of like so many of these legislators, Republican and Democrat, they get along really well at a personal level. And it's, I think that's yeah. fine. I mean, I, I have friends with, all, I'm actually friends with a lot of conservatives in my life and some family members who are voted for Trump, but you know, like you get, you get people like, like Rob Bell, who will just say some of the most horrendous things about my clients and about, you know, just about my clients and, and people have gotten in trouble. And then you, he'll come off the bench and what a lot of people know about Rob Bell is he, he's also like really friendly. and He's got like a really good sense of humor. So you got this guy who's just you know, up, up doing his committee thing. who just seems so mean. And meanwhile, like all of his colleagues are like, oh yeah, Rob Bell, great guy. So it's just a, it's, you know, that's the way politics are. I'm not saying anything uh, as a person, I'm not, just for the record, you know, just this, not saying anything positive or negative about Rob Bell as a, as a human being. I just tell it, it's, a, it's an example of the interesting way in which politics works. There's, there's just uh, there are public personas and private personas. And I think that um, it's, that's something that advocates are not always accustomed to. And, uh, you know, because advocates are, are often more principled, I think. If we believe in a thing and we don't understand why you'd be one way in public and different, a different way in private. But anyway, like, uh, yeah, so I guess we're gonna have to deal with a lot of Republicans and a lot of uh, tough on crime stuff. And I don't know. The good, the good news is this is uh, yeah. oddly like uh, criminal justice reform, believe it or not, in many states has been bipartisan. We're, one of our priorities, Justice Forward Virginia, is defelonizing possession of drugs. Two of the last states to do it were Oklahoma and Utah, with their bright red, and they did it for, they didn't do it for the normal reasons, the reasons that progressive might do it. Drug addiction is not something that is, it's, it is race neutral. It is, it is a thing that is race neutral. I mean, it, it affects the war on drugs, certainly affects black communities, much, hits them much harder, but lots of people who are white, especially in Oklahoma and Utah, because those are primarily white states, get addicted. And then I think that they just saw their communities being torn up. So like, we gotta come up with a new approach. 
I do have hope. Maybe I'm being uh, naive, but I do have hope. That me- messaging around those bad and actually about costs, which aren't, again, not real popular with progressives, but do resonate. Cost arguments do resonate with conservatives. I do hope that some of these arguments can get some traction and we can continue making progress. Right. Um, I really appreciate your time, Bradley. Uh, it's very nice meeting you. Brad Haywood, he is a public defender up in Arlington, Virginia. He is the founder and executive director of the Justice Forward organization. It was great having you on. Yeah, thanks a lot. take the ground that the right has overwhelmed the ground that we have conceded to them the ground of justice we have allowed it to become atomized individualized and focused on actions of individuals instead of an overarching look at the way that this society treats the least of these at the way that this society does not fulfill its promise to the most vulnerable. And we are surprised when the actions of people who are truly desperate, who have faced poverty and hunger for decades, people who have been neglected, abused, starved, and mentally tortured by this society, namely our government and the forces of racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and ableism, what the consequences are for those actions or lack thereof. And it is incumbent upon us facing down the right, namely the Republican Party especially in light of how badly Democrats lost because of how far down we have fallen in terms of the ability to turn out a base and also our own base not coming out, but also in how close all three races were, but in particular the attorney general race between Jason Miaris and Mark Herring. And though the differences in many ways are subtle, the difference to tens of thousands of people within local jails and state prisons within Virginia is massive. And the difference of the perception of what justice looks like, of what justice is, is massively different. It is time that we make affirmative arguments of justice to defund the police because it is a public safety issue. They should not have MRAPs. They should not have sniper rifles. There's no need for them to have 
night seeking goggles. There's no reason why they need to have drones. There's no reason why they need to have planes. There is no reason why it is that they need to have qualified immunity so that they walk around with guns and the ability to take your freedom away from you and make you a slave of the state without any accountability. There is no need for any of that. Policing overall is a method of surveillance and antagonism and occupation of communities. Not of building them, not of solving any problems, but of reacting to them in an individualized, atomized way of thinking. And it's not working. It never has. It is time that we actually look at the real tools to address poverty, the real tools to address addiction, the real tools for justice. In Virginia and in the United States. And I'm very glad Brad Haywood from Justice Forward, Virginia, was able to make that point so salient and so clear. But it is our collective responsibility to each other to prevent crime. And we know it's not with cops. We know it's not with tough on crime laws. We know it's not with mandatory minimums. We know it's not with mass incarceration. We also know that it's giving people a fair shot in life. It's justice. Oh, 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 oh,